This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. William James Anderson is a comedian, writer, presenter and podcaster. One of Australia's hardest working and most popular entertainers, he's widely awarded for his work across TV, radio and stand-up comedy. First off, before we get to your choices, Will, um, I just want to say congratulations on your podcasting. I think Willosophy is, it's one of my personal favourites, but I think it's genuinely one of the best out there anywhere. It's been remarkable how much people have connected with it. And I think really just because there's a lot of interview podcasts out there, but it's not an interview podcast. It's not... If you're expecting to hear about somebody's entire career during that podcast, you won't. Often you'll hear about what their favourite type of sandwich is and we'll talk about that for 20 minutes because really all I'm looking for is to eventually ask that question, get onto that topic where in all the times they've been interviewed, in all the times they've had conversations, what's the thing you really want to talk about? And that's if we get to that on the podcast and that is obviously very different from person to person, but what's the thing that you light up? when you you start talking about what's the thing that you're passionate about? What's the thing that in every interview you've done so far they'd wish you wish they'd asked you about your book? And and so I, I that's my my philosophy for the philosophy podcast is to just get to that interesting thing. But also I don't prepare. Like, you know, this is a very professional podcast that I'm doing today. I feel very shamed because mine's mostly <laughs> recorded, you know, myself, not in a professional studio. You know, the dogs <laughs> on the guest laps, whether they like it or not. And um, my my technique is very simple. I, I do not do any research on the people that I have in. And then I just listen and ask questions based on what they say in their answers. And I hope that I get to discover things about their life at the same time as the audience who is listening get to discover those things rather than me having a set agenda for what we're going to do during the podcast. So what I've got to say is it works, but I hate you because I should have set up that podcast, not this podcast, because this is research heavy. All I do is read about bloody Will Anderson Mm. and your choices. I I should have set up the podcast, which is just rock up with my dog on my lap and and shoot the breeze. Absolutely. (laughs) I I, I couldn't agree with you more. You're going to a lot of fuss for what is an imaginary radio show. (laughs) There's camera crews in here. There's a cast of people. Like, to be honest, you've got more people working working on this show than a lot of podcasts have listening to their podcasts. (laughs) You've gone to a lot of effort. You're asking people for lists. They're doing research to come on your podcast, then you have to go away and do all this extra research. My philosophy, it's a very self-serving philosophy, which is no research. That's the theme of the podcast. I refuse to learn anything about you until we start talking to each other. Okay, that, well, that's, um, that's going to be my new philosophy, but <laughs> but I have done the work on you and I, and I have to ask, a, a thank you, I know you're incredibly busy for making the time for the five of my life. Uh, how did you find the process of of your five, easy, fun, boring, talk to your partner. I mean, I hate it. I I literally hate it. And I mean that completely honestly, because that that idea of defining, you know, 
myself by things that a I like. Yeah, I think is a problematic thing in the first place. You know, this modern day society, without getting too deep on it, I think that so often, so much of what we do and what we consume is set up by what we like. The algorithms, even of the computers, are feeding us stuff we like. You like this, you watch this on Netflix, you listen to this sort of music, then you might like this. And the idea that we go through life only sampling things and defining ourselves by the things that we like and things that are similar to the things that we like. It's often why commercial radio is so boring, right? Yeah. Because the way they test the music is that they play you a little bit of new music and the only new music that people are going to respond to in that small testing size is new music that sounds already like the music they're familiar with. Those great songs, the songs that revolutionise rock and roll and music, are the songs that when they first come out don't sound like anything else on the radio and then they define that era and that generation. So they're not ones that you're immediately going to listen to and think this is fantastic. And again, that idea that the there are these signposts of your life that somehow this song or somehow this movie or this moment can tell you something inherently about me. It is a it's a a, a false artifice, but then of course something that I then want to honor the concept of your podcast. So yeah. it takes you quite a lot of time to go, well, Okay, well, let's. If I have to, for, if I have to <laughs> give in to the conceit of what this is and try to provide, because I didn't want to be flippant then in sure. answering it, because you know it is the conceit of what you are doing, of course, and you are asking people in to say, "Here, tell me some stories around these things that will tell the audience who is listening today something about you that they might not already so, know." So, so what I'm what I'm trying to do, absolutely with a conceit, is what you do, and I'm using the format. They lead to a story. But this is great because this is a double train crash. And not only have I set up a podcast where I have to do lots of research, my guest hates having to choose. So we're off to a flyer. Yeah, exactly. You've already put me on the back foot. That's what you've done. So I do apologize. Could you please come on my podcast and now here's your homework. (laughs) So we're going to start with your homework. You have chosen my youngest daughter's favourite film, the 1987 cult classic, The Princess Bride. Uh, Tell me why. Uh, there are very few, to misquote one of the lines from the movie, there are very few perfect movies in the world. And I, I believe this is a perfect movie. It, it, comedy in particular ages quite badly and because uh, often it's of its time and it's very hard to write something that is so perfect that you could re-watch it years later and still think it's perfect. Life of Brian comes to mind, but there's very rare comedy movies throughout history. But The Princess Bride is a perfect movie. It's a perfect movie that you can watch back today and still says something about modern-day society, even though it's, you know, in essence, a fairy story. And the lines in it still stand up. There is nothing about it that has become problematic in the 30 years since it's been released. And I saw it by mistake. That's, I think, probably what excited me the most about it. I'm not one of those people who discovered The Princess Bride later. I discovered The Princess Bride at the Sale Cinema, uh, East Gippsland, a sale, a, a Big, big country town sale of about 12,000 people, which is where I went to high school. And I'm from a little place of 250 people. So sale to me was, you know, a big, big town. Smoke. You yeah. know, it's where you went to the movies. It's where, you know, they had a cinema. You know, they had a McDonald's. Actually, they didn't until I was in year 12. So that gives you a bit of a sense of how big a town it was. And going to the movies was seen as an amazing treat. You know, very exciting, that idea of, you know, going to the movies. And I remember it was me and my friend, uh, uh, Sarah Bailey, his name is, I'm sure he wouldn't mind if I mentioned this. Uh, and we both had sisters who uh, were of a similar age. So 
basically the idea was that day that the parents had to find a film that was all right for us to see but all right for our little sisters to go along to the movies for us to see. And they chose this movie, The Princess Bride, because from the advertising you would have imagined that it was going to be, you know, Pitch very much like you said at your daughter and at the you know the, the the little sisters in this relationship. So I went into this thinking, oh, here we go. Much like the Fred Savage character, to be honest, in the Princess Bride itself, I was like, oh, you know, is this a kissing book? You know, I was like that with that movie. Is this a kissing movie? And I remember just sitting there, and there were. I reckon it was probably maybe if. If it wasn't just the four of us in the cinema, there was probably a couple of stray other people. It was a middle of a day, you know, movie viewing, not a popular movie when it came out at the cinema, uh, and I knew nothing about it. And then for the next, you know, two hours, I was captivated by the way that this story unfolded, the incredible comic performances, the memorable lines, the actual hero story, the 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 fact that it was taking apart all those myths at the same time as putting them back together but being respectful of the form it's like it's the the greatest of all comedies because it is both a parody but also uses all the tropes to tell that story as incredibly successful as those stories are told and it does it so tone perfectly right the way through the movie i became obsessed with Will, william goldman who wrote that movie afterwards um, he wrote uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is what he won his Oscar for, but uh, an incredible screenwriter in general. So one of the greatest Hollywood screenwriters of all time and wrote some incredible books about uh, Hollywood screenwriting, which are iconic books in the genre, and I devoured everything. I went and found the Princess Bride book, and, of course, the book is – there's this – I would recommend – I won't try to explain it here because we don't have the time, but I would recommend to people there is a – the way he wrote the book originally was as if it was based on this other book. And then I, he doesn't tell you that it's not real. And so, like, you know, you go off to try to find you this try. other, other <laughs> book, but this other book doesn't actually exist. It's all, yeah. So it's this incredibly complex backstory that then made this perfect movie. And, and you know, I would watch it at least, least once a year still. I would just like wow. sit down and watch The Princess Bride just for it's my. It's my genuine happy place. Like when I'm watching that movie, you just, every single part of it is still just perfect. But there's a line in it, right? Having seen you on mm. stage a couple of times, there's a line in it where they're doing the drinking game with the poison. Yes. And, and he switches it over mm. and he thinks he's won. And he, and he goes, ha ha, that's the biggest mistake that people make uh, after starting a land war in Asia. Yeah. And you think, that's, you've just dropped that in. Yeah. At, at, at the same time as it's pantomime you know, puss in boots, swashbuckling, it's full of those types of things. Yeah. And, and then researching about it before I watched it, and you go, you've got William Goldman, Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, Rob Reiner, Spinal Tap. And I tell you, we get, get to the music. How about Mark Knopfler? You go, yeah. it, it, it's, it's going to work with that collection of characters, which makes me want to ask of you is when you have projects where you have got the most amazing collaborators, does it always work? Or have you had, you know, the, the Rob Reiner, William Goldman, Mark Knopfler's, and it's been a stinking turd? I mean, they, they've, they've all got to work in sync. That's, right, yes. That's right. the issue. Like, I mean, I host a, a television panel show, and we have five guests on every show, two regulars, you know, who are there pretty much every week. What we could do is we have an idea of who the audience best responds to of our guests that we have on that show, who our stars of that show are. Now, what we could do is put, you know, the top three stars in the audience mind on a panel, but that wouldn't necessarily make the best panel because what you're looking for is 
you know, to use a sporting analogy, like if you've got a gun shooter in the team, sometimes you need like a big tall centre to be getting the rebounds to get it to the, it's not, you don't actually need another gun shooter. You know, if you've got, so what you're looking for is teams that work together. Often what I I think when I talk to my team at Gruen, for example, about how we make the show is when we're having meetings, I'll often start with what I want and then I will put it over to them and then I will just listen for a very long time and then at the end I will start to process some of their thoughts into, again, what it is that I want. Because if I'm speaking, I already know what I think. Yeah. I already – so if we're just relying on it all coming out of me, we're never going to get a broader vision for what the show might be. So my my big trick on that is that you're always looking for complementary skills rather than just saying let's get the – you know. Let's get the five biggest names in comedy and put them on a show. That doesn't necessarily work. You've got to look for five people who have, you know, supporting and complementary skills to be able to work together. And, and I reckon we're talking about the, the Gruen transfer here. Is I mean, I, I know Todd and I don't know Russell. Um, is with the greatest respect to Todd, who's a dear friend, is I think, and, and indeed yourself, who I think is a legend, is the secret source of that show is you guys having the wit and understanding to have a Russell on. Because if you didn't, if it, if it was broadly, simply, if it was lots of people being anti-advertising and left-wing for whatever, you need, to your point, you need the Russell bloke in the suit standing up for the big advertiser because that's what makes it all, it makes you shine, Todd shine, everyone shine. It, it would be easy not to have him because I would imagine the audience, you know, Todd gets all the fan mail, you've got the fan mail potentially and, and, and Russell's the big, you know, Big business, if that makes does that make sense? So what you're saying is 100% correct. Oh. Like, could not be more accurate. Like, oh, it's the thing that I say constantly about the show. I said that realistically, everybody else on the show could be replaced, and we could go on. We could not replace Russell. He is the one invaluable person on the show because he is the most honest person on the show. We're making a show about advertising. Most of the people who come on and on the panel have made their careers and fortunes out of advertising, and yet they come on and sneer and look down their nose and pick it all apart and go, aren't we terrible? And Russell's the one who comes on and goes, I love it. It's great. I love advertising. You know, It's an honest response. But also, yes, from the point of view of the show we're trying to make, your insights are 100% correct. The ABC audience, the traditional ABC audience, of course, they're anti-Russell. You know, they're, yeah. they're anti-Russell because Russell stands for everything that they're, you know, traditionally against. And particularly in, say, the first five years. I mean, we've been going over a decade now and I think the audience has a greater understanding of how it works together. And because also I think they see the love and affection I personally have for Russell because Russell's one of my closest yeah. friends. And like a great example, and this is what I love about Russell, is a great example about how two people can be tight, tight friends. Like Russell and I will be friends for all our life. We just enjoy each other's company. And yet if you li- wrote down the things that we believe in, they would be diametrically different. And often we can have these incredible conversations around that in such a respectful and fun and teasing and and, you know, I think a lot of what we're missing in society is that level of debate, like inclusive, um, you know, inclusive different ideas. Instead of having to – the thing I hate the most is these panel shows that get one person on one end who you know, completely believes this and one person on the other end who completely believes this and then they just yell at each other for an hour and we call that balance. That's not balance. That's two people who will never change their minds on anything yelling at each other for absolutely no point. You're much more likely – 
to actually move forward, you know, have better ideas, have both sides contribute if you can find people who can argue and develop ideas in this sort of cocoon of love and friendship and teasing. And Russell is incredibly generous at letting me, you know, tease him, but he is because he knows he's in safe hands. He knows that I am doing it through love. He knows that often when I'm teasing, it softens what he's saying for the audience and it helps him. But the amount of times I would have people say to me, you know, you should replace Russell with Dee Madigan. You should replace (laughs) Russell with, and it's not not to say that Dee Madigan wouldn't do a yeah. great job sitting as a regular panellist on the show, but they're completely missing the point of what the show is. The show would die if Russell wasn't there because it, Russell is the little bit of grit that makes the diamond. Russell is the most important element in there because he's the person that, you know, starts those reactions, you know, gets things going, is willing to go to bat for something that nobody else on the panel is going to go to bat for. So, he no, absolutely, it's about getting that team right, that balance right, together rather than there being about let's get this, uh, you know, one-note superstar team. Not as interesting. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. So we are going to move on three years for your second choice, but we are going to stay within the sort of a fantasy genre because you've chosen for your book Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. Why is that then? It's a, Well, I think a lot of these things are just formative in explaining how it was that a little kid from a dairy farm in country Victoria. I mean, a kid who grew up on a road named after his grandfather that my father still lives on. You know, my dad's lived on that road for 76 years and my brother is a farmer on that same block of land. Different road, intersecting road, so he's made it off the one road. So, so, so Ross works with Dad? Yeah, Ross That's works with lovely. Dad. Yeah, so right. he's back on the farm. He's taken over the farm. And uh, and so they're back there together and um you know that's that's where we're from that's the andersons and you know you're connected to hayfield and the local community and so how did how did a kid from that background become who i am well many of the things that we're talking about today are about that journey so the princess bride very much you can see it in much of the work that i've done for the rest of my life is informed by that that was the comedy that i fell in love with you know, a clever fantasy, you know, well-written, great one-liners. That was the sort of comedy that I started to enjoy. And I think for that very reason, another book that was very um, pivotal in the sort of work that I went on to create, and I think perhaps without wanting to reveal too much because you never know what's going to happen in the future, perhaps the one chapter of my creative life that I haven't explored to the extent that I would like to yet, but I've always had... If, if anyone's ever asked me, what's that one thing that you haven't got to do yet, you know, because I've been lucky enough to do a whole range of things, it probably is I'm very interested in fantasy comedy writing. So, ah. and, and a lot of that came through my love of Terry Pratchett first, but it was Good Omens that introduced me to Neil Gaiman and then Neil Gaiman became a very, for a, probably about 10 years in my life, I was obsessed by everything that Neil Gaiman did. Like American Gods, I just devoured and... Um, the big one for me was the Sandman graphic novel series, which I just revolutionised the way. I had always liked comic books, but I was never like a, you know, I wasn't, a, we weren't a comic book family. I didn't have an encyclopedic. I knew the characters, but I didn't really know, you know, comic books in there, what they had become, what graphic novels had become. And and so Neil Gaiman then got me into, you know, a, that bigger, broader world of, you know, that there was all these, you know, people in this world that were suddenly these amazing, you know, writers and doing this amazing work. And so 
I ended up like reading a lot of, you know, Watchmen and, you know, Why the Last Man and all these sort of things. But it all came from good omens. And again, I think you can really trace a direct line between The Princess Bride and Good Omens. They're actually in in some ways feel very similar because they're this tightly constructed comedic universe that is, you know, making, again, you know, The Princess Bride's kind of deconstructing the fairy story and putting it back together. Well, what Good Omens is doing is, you know, essentially telling the story of Damien and the apocalypse, you know, angels and devils and God and, you know, dealing with all these incredibly huge themes and particularly as a teenage kid as you're coming out of a family where I was raised Well, my dad's not religious at all, never been religious, but my mum was raised, you know, just in the Anglican church and, you know, we went to church every Sunday and suddenly you're at an age where you're starting to think as a teenager, well, this doesn't really make sense to me and, you know, a lot of this and, you know, to see someone being so irreverent around that topic but not in a way that was, you know, again, blankly or bluntly dismissive. It was clever. It was precise. The language and the jokes were incredible and, also, just this idea for me, that was like my first superhero team up because, you know, I loved Terry Pratchett already. And then suddenly when I discovered who Neil Gaiman was and how amazing he was, I was like, look at this, this like old British guy with a beard and this like cool American guy with a trench coat have like collaborated on this. They wrote this book together. Even the idea of how that would work that, was fascinating that, that to me. The story is amazing how they did that. You get the, the chances of that working. But you met Neil, is that right? Yeah, I did. So pre-Willosophy, I guess probably even the first, you know, Willosophy I ever did, if you will, was probably with Neil Gaiman. It was live. It was a Sydney Writers Festival event or some or some such thing. And um, that, again, the kind of idea had been that, they want to do a in, a in conversation event, but they don't necessarily want it to be your traditional boring, here are you know, same questions that Neil gets asked at every Q&A. So they asked me to do it and they said, what you'll basically do is Neil will just have a cup of tea with you beforehand and you guys can have a chat about where it is that he wants to go and then can you do that? And so I guess perhaps that was where it started, that idea of, because he was very into, I always get asked this, this and this. They'll probably ask it at the Q&A at the end anyway. So let's just avoid that stuff in the main bit and then, you know, people can ask that in the questions and whatever. So we had this conversation that was much more about, you know, how did you do this? How did you feel when you were doing this? You know, what was your biggest fear, you know, when you were doing this? And and started exploring those ideas I do a little bit more in my podcast because uh, basically because he had given me the permission to at that stage. He but- was the one who had said – you know, I'd rather be asked something I haven't been asked before than, you know, kind of have to so, do the same answers again. So I'm going to have to take you to time. A, that's wonderful to hear about that might have been the start of philosophy or the part of the start. But in one of the descriptions I've read of it, it's Will Anderson asks smart people dumb questions. And I go, that's, that's not what it is at all. It's Will Anderson asks smart people smart questions. I know, but uh, he's... Self-deprecation. Correct. Sir. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, part of it is... I mean, without wanting to, you know, give away the magician's secrets, of course, part of me getting what I get out of people is the disarming that I'm not bringing them in for a 60-minute style interview. Yeah. Yeah, Of course, that's absolutely part of it. My favourite way, this is the difference between American and Australian comedy when you're doing stand-up, because I spent 10 years in the US, you know, doing stand-up, and 
you know, they want your credits beforehand because that's the American way. You know, you might have seen this guy on Conan. You saw him on Chelsea lately and they'll list like three minutes of credits before they introduce somebody. That is the opposite to how Australians want to be introduced. My favourite ever introduction that sums up everything I believe about comedy was Peter Hallier and he used to do it from backstage. Ladies and gentlemen, turn off your mobile phones and lower your expectations. It's Peter <laughs> Hallier. <laughs> and that's what you want. That's yeah. For me, is you want to disarm first. Often what happens in my podcast is that if I want someone to tell a story about something and particularly an intimate thing, I will ask them the question, then share something very similar about myself first. And that has a twofold reason for that. One is that while I tell my story, it gives them some time to formulate their thoughts about what they're going to say. And secondly, I believe that by me revealing something about myself in that way, it gives them permission to then feel comfortable to reveal something about themselves in that way. But you're quite a private cove, I would suggest. Yes. So uh, romantically, yes. what are you prepared to share? So the question I was going to ask is, does your life, you're the hardest working bloke, which I'm going to come on to talk about, does your life make that side of things more difficult, less difficult, makes no difference either way? The fact that you're always going to be on the road and blah, blah, blah. Hard to know. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. <laughs> uh, you probably have to ask the person at home. The, the, the reason that I'm so private is actually... Not necessarily that, because I share quite a lot about myself, but I always do say to people that you have control over what it is you share. So I will be extremely open about a whole bunch of things, but there are certain things that I keep private and for myself. And to be honest, it's less about for me. It's more about that I chose to do this with my life and the person who is in my life did not choose to do this with her life. And so she feels uncomfortable, like occasionally when, you know, her name is, you know, mentioning things or somebody puts it in an article or whatever, even if I haven't mentioned it myself, they'll do some research. And I mean, it's not a secret, like you can find the information if you want to find the information. And, you know, people who listen to my pod podcast will often hear me, well, actually, sometimes we'll hear her walk in or we'll hear references to her or whatever. But because she hasn't chosen to be in the spotlight, I'm incredibly protective of making sure that I don't do anything to make her feel uncomfortable when, you know, putting her into situations or scenarios. So I'm pretty lucky also that n not really any of my work revolves around, you know, this thing happened at home. Often, you know, things, conversations we've had or one-liners that she's come up with end up in my shows. She often thinks she writes some of her best stuff. So th that's absolutely true. And uh, but yes, I absolutely. I, I do think that there are areas of your life. My big thing, even like comedically when I'm putting together a routine, is if I'm talking about something, it's very rare that I'm talking about one person. So if I'm talking about an experience that I had, you know, in a shop, it's normally a, a combination of three different experiences that I've had in a shop and I've combined those three different people into. Uh, in my most recent show, I tell the story of going to see uh, my therapist again. But the truth is that the therapist I'm referring to in the show, the, the, the therapist that is the through line of the show is a combination of three different therapists I've had that I've combined into one person so that it's not any of the therapists in particular, which is partly for their sake, you know, I don't want to, you know, put them into a show and then misrepresent them. But secondly, it's because, uh, you know, I, when I'm talking about real life people, they haven't signed up to be in this world. So what I like to do is often just take a characteristic or traits of a couple of different people and combine them into each other. Wonderful. Th thank you for sharing that. It's hearing how people deal with press intrusion and their personal lives in their public work. There's a story about Richard E. Grant. 
which I just adore, where the you know he would get papped, paparazzi with Nell and I, all that stuff. And his solution to it was making himself available. What a legend! So what he did, so he would go you know shopping with his wife and kid, and they take pictures of him and you know push the pram and all that. It was a disaster. So he decided, I'm going to stand there and destroy the market value of my picture. So you can't sell a picture of Richard E. Grant because there are, there are thousands and thousands, so the sun on the news of the world doesn't want it. And you go, wow, just different ways of dealing with your personal life if you are an entertainer and a performer. I think that one of the things that I've been very conscious of in that area is that uh, the, the rule used to be, and it is not anymore, but I think this was a good rule, which was that if you are profiting from your relationship, if you and your partner are rocking up to you know, get your photo taken at movie premieres and that you've got an Instagram page where you're, you know, you're flogging your active wear or whatever, then you have commercialised your relationship and then from a public perspective you could make the argument that then therefore, you know, you've put your relationship on the public agenda, therefore, you know, it's okay for the public to have some curiosity around it, but we have never done that. No. You know, you can't find a picture of us at a movie premiere or anything like that. So I do feel like in the old days that used to be like, okay, well, they've kept it private, we'll also not intrude. And to be honest, mostly that is still the case. I do think that, you know, I mean, I'm not Richard E. Grant. No one's particularly interested in papping me, you know. <laughs> I, I, can, I can swim with my shirt off at Bondi and nobody's going to take a photo of it. They're just going to shout, put your shirt yeah. on. <laughs> I did get once papped at the gym. I was at the gym and somebody, like, took photos through the window of the gym and that ran in the paper and I think that was the last time I ever got papped because I don't think they got any extra sales. It was from... a slow news day. <laughs> slow news year, I would have thought. <laughs> now, we're going to have to move on to your third yes. choice. So for your song, we're going back 10 years to 1980. It's the lead single from ACDC's seventh album, mm. the title song, the best opening riff, I think, ever of anything, mm. Back in Black. I, yeah, I believe that too, and I've heard it a lot. So <laughs> I, you, you open your show with it? I open my show with it. It's a, a, every show that you do? Every single show for the last decade, I open wow. with Back in Black. and I've, uh, you know, To the point where I noticed the other night that people have... People get that now. So I was doing a gala night where they just had, you know, different music in between the different performers. And I noticed as I walked on stage, they, they had Back in Black. I had not asked for it. It was just, you know, enough in the zeitgeist and people know now. But I spoke about it in my last show, Were Legal. I actually spoke about why I used Back in Black. It was the first time that I'd ever spoken about it on stage because it was integral to the story that I was telling. So, but the reason is, and this is the story is, and there was a comedian called Dave Grant. Uh, he was a Melbourne comedian, and uh, when I first started coming through the scene, he was probably, you know, another five or ten years more experience. You know, he was an established comedian already, and Dave Grant was an incredibly kind performer to younger performers, a very generous performer. He was a guy who knew live comedy back to front. Like, I've never seen a better live performer than Dave Grant. You know, any room that he ever played, but he was one of those guys who, you know, he would take his own lights to gigs in the boot. He would rearrange the chairs in the room. Like, he was a perfectionist when it came to people having the perfect experience. This sight line's no good. You're going to have to move this. You're going to have to fix that speaker. You're going to have to turn the lights down here. He was a real perfectionist about every show being the best 
it's a bit unusual for comedians. Comedians will tend to rock up and go, oh, there is no microphone. Oh, well, I guess I'll just shout the jokes, you know. <laughs> Whereas he was the opposite. He was like, no, this is a professional thing and it should be treated. You're doing a show and everything in this room should be in the perfect position for this to be the perfect show. And there's no such thing as a show too small or too big. And he never quite got the mainstream success that he deserved. Now, I believe that comedy is a live art form. I believe if you watch something on Netflix or Stan, you watch someone special, if you love it, you know, if you adore it, if you think it's the best thing you've ever seen, imagine what it would have been like to see it live because you've seen about 60% maximum of what it actually felt like in the room. Live comedy is to be experienced live. You know, I what I love about, I do some improvised stand-up shows, as you know, and what I love about those is that part of the joy is that it will never be repeated again, that those people in that room that night, they're the only ones who'll be able to remember that riff or that person or that joke or that thing that happened. And everybody in the room has the same ingredients to enjoy it. And they're not half watching while on their phone or going out to get a cup of tea or stopping it halfway through to have a rest and then trying to pick it up again. It's a show. And that's what Dave was about. Dave was about tonight might be the best comedy show you've ever seen in your life. Now, so when he when he died way too soon and and way before the the great success <laughs> that he should have had, uh, I was just thinking about ways that I could honour him or remember him, you know, because he had been incredibly kind to me and we had become a lot closer um, uh, when he'd been sick. You know, like the, the, the comedy community is an incredibly generous community, particularly when people are in trouble. You know, the first people to organise bushfire benefits, the first people to look after somebody if they're, you know, sick or, or need our help. And so when Dave was sick, you know, we rallied around a bit and Dave and I yeah, probably became closer than we had been previously. And, and when he died, I was just like, how do I, how do I, you know, how do I honour this? And so Dave, Dave's uh, intro music was Back in Black by ACDC. And so... I decided that I would adopt them with the permission of, you know, his family, um, that I would adopt his intro music as my intro music. And the reason for that was that I just wanted to, I actually for a while, I'd forgotten this until I started telling this story, but I remember at the start, I used to write on my hand, uh, yeah, WWDGD, uh, what would Dave Grant do? Like, because that idea of like when you're backstage, you know, often when you're doing a long run, you know, particularly a festival, 20 shows in a row, but, uh, but you know, any type of run, any type, the you know, comedy is like any other job. You know, some days, you know, even if you have the best job in the world, you're like, oh, I've had a busy day. I probably would prefer not to work tonight if I didn't have to. But Dave never had that attitude. And I wanted to make sure that I could be reminded of not having that attitude. Never phoning it in. Never phoning it in. Yeah. And so when I hear that music, that's my reminder, you know, that I should honour the memory of Dave by, you know, gigs will go well, gigs will go badly, but I'm not going to phone them in. I'm going to try to make tonight the best possible experience that people could have. And then it becomes quite a pivotal moment in when I get arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga and I end up having to do a show that night straight out of, you know, being interrogated by the police and locked in a cell. That music becomes incredibly important on that night in that moment and that's that that bit that then became actually not only the music that opened the show but integral to this show and this story itself what an incredible story so it's a trigger to get the best out of you yeah and the, the, the thing uh, and now though but when i hear it on the radio or if somebody plays a bit of it i do have start a, performing i have a pavlovian <laughs> response there is a little bit of me like hang on is that me am i on <laughs> the, the the song it 
it's, it's like a double tribute. So you're using it as a tribute to, mm. to Dave, but that song, I didn't realise this, was written by Brian Johnson as a tribute to Bon Scott. Mm. And like you said, it's got the greatest, I mean, it also is great intro music. Yeah. Like, it's a great <laughs> way to start a show. <laughs> Fourth choice, Will, you have chosen the Thousand Seater Theatre built in 1928 in Exhibition Street, Melbourne, the Comedy Theatre. What's all that all about? Uh, more people have seen me do shows there than anywhere else in the world. In fact, I'm pretty much, if you add it up <laughs> everywhere else in the world, it'd be about, I think I've done 11 seasons or something, like it, yeah, maybe even 12 seasons at the Comedy Theatre. So it's my home during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And Yes, it's a thousand-seat theatre and I do 20 shows every comedy festival and so more people have sat in that room watching me do what I do than anywhere else in the world. It's so, your home pitch. Yeah, it is. It's my home club and yeah. I'm you know, probably, you know, I'm probably the comedian again. Like, you know, for, I mean, I've spent, you know, what have I, if it, you know, I've spent over a year of my performing life, you know, performing in that theatre and so it feels like home to me. When I go to the comedy festival, it's the one place that I want to play. I think it's the perfect theatre. You know, I've been lucky enough to play, you know, the main room at the Sydney Opera House. I've been lucky enough to play Rod Laver Arena. You know, all these incredibly huge and iconic venues. But for me, you know, I love the Enmore in Sydney. I think that's a beautiful venue. I love the comedy store where I'm doing my improv shows in Sydney where they were born because it's a beautiful, you know, space to do stand-up comedy. But for me, the perfect room is the the Comedy Theatre in Melbourne. It's a 1,000 seats. It's uh, got a balcony that's really close to the stage, so it feels like you're playing a small club still, even though you've got all these people in there. They've just finally redone the seats, so it's comfortable for the audience now. But the stage itself, it just there's an intimacy with the audience that I can't replicate in any other theatre around the country. I like that... Uh, there's a little back entrance so I can sneak in and sneak out because that, that is you know, what I prefer with the show. And there's a little alleyway by the side of the theatre where they let me smoke. So, so it's the perfect environment uh, for what I need um, in a theatre. So uh, I love it. and But most importantly, I guess the reason that I love it is that it is tied to the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And the Melbourne Comedy Festival is where I started doing stand-up. And um, it is the anchor in my life of all the things that I have done of all the adventures that I've had everywhere I go the one thing that I can tell you that I've been doing I, I, I'm no good with dates and times and you know when this happened and what happened and how many of these I've done but I can tell you precisely that I've done every April for the last 25 years quarter of a century you will find me at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival doing shows you know yeah it's the anchor in my life it's the one thing that gets locked into the diary first and foremost every year it's the one thing that legitimizes my story and tells the story of who I am as a comedian that for me it's always been about live comedy first the Melbourne Comedy Festival is the world's greatest comedy festival I will have no argument against that I know some people will go what about Montreal it's a trade convention for top-end comics doing huge gala shows great fun thing to be involved in but it's a you know it's a trade convention it's a show-off you're doing 10 minutes you know in these huge rooms full of thousands of people you know, what about the Edinburgh Fringe Festival? Yeah, I mean, amazing, of course. You know, over a thousand brilliant comedy shows 
But the Edinburgh Fringe Festival is not a comedy festival. It has a comedy festival component of a broader, larger fringe festival, but it's not a specialist comedy festival. The greatest comedy festival in the world is the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Over 600 individual shows, often by people who have spent their entire year saving their money and then, you know, coming up with an hour of ideas out of their imagination, haven't dug anything out of the ground, haven't, you know, got some kid to stitch something in a third world country. Their pure imagination has created an idea and an hour and they've found a room and they've got people to come and see it and that's what I did when I first started and that gives you an opportunity, a passport into the world of comedy and I find it, twenty. Yeah, these people are doing 20 shows, the same as what I'm doing, 20 shows. They come out and they do their shows even if there's one person there, two people there. They do the show every night. I find that incredibly yeah, just the fact that everyone gets to do their show. These other festivals, that's not the case. That's not how it works. And so top to bottom, that tells the story of my life and career. You could chart it through the size of the rooms. You could chart it through, you know, the the proudest I have been. I'm not a person who is particularly fond of like, you know, awards and stuff, even though I've been lucky to to win some. But uh, the one, the, the bit that I am actually, you know, that, I think six times I've won the People's Choice at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And for me, that is, couldn't be a higher higher compliment because it's my favourite thing to do. It's my favourite place to do comedy. And if the people there thought I was their favourite thing of that year, then that's about as perfect for me as it could possibly be. it, It is wonderful seeing and hearing you light up when you talk about this fourth choice. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that has been intriguing me reading about you. Is is you are famously hardworking. Why? I mean, nobody told me how hard or not hard you meant to work. Like, I, I never considered myself to be particularly hardworking. I think often I'm quite lazy. I know the ways that I waste my time from day to day, you know. Like, but you only become aware of these things when other people start to say it. Right, other people start to say that you're hardworking. I've never considered myself necessarily to be hardworking. I think part of it is probably that I was raised on a dairy farm, and dairy farming is is actual hard work. And so, by comparison, like I don't consider anything that I do hard work compared to being on a dairy farm. And so, I think there's probably a little bit of me that you know decided that if I were going to go and do this thing that did not seem like real work because this is what people got to remember when I started doing comedy there was a kid opening for me the other night Elliot Stewart at the comedy store who 18 years old 19 years old right like he missed the first six years of my career by not being born like I was doing triple j by the time that he was born you know I have shoes older than Elliot you know um he is going into comedy because comedy is a thing that you can make a career out of now, and it has been for quite a while. But when I went into comedy, it was still really running away to join the circus. And so I think there was a part of my mind that was like, well, if I want my parents to be accepting of this choice in my life, the best way for me to do that is to show them that I will be as determined and diligent about pursuing this as, you know, tr- if I treat it like it's a real job, then they will respect but, that it is a real job. But, but reaching the level of success that you now have, someone could say to you, how about two shows, not three? How about just the best the best performing TV thing and we'll leave the radio aside? Or just do radio? Not- you, you do it all. So so I imagine you, you have the respect from family, whatever else, you, you are successful and peer 
you know, respect and all those wonderful things. Yet you still are charging at it like a wounded bull, which is which is amazing and lucky mm. lucky for us consumers. But I, I I just wonder if that is still the reason. It's funny though because you again you say that, but I know all the things I say no to. Right. So I guess in my head, you know, the fact that I'm I say no nine out of ten times. Right. So I guess in my head, you I'm, could do it even harder. I'm doing a tenth of what I could right. possibly be doing. You know, yesterday somebody you know offered me a book deal, and I was like, I can't. You know, I say no all the time. Okay. This is my point. You I'm know, pleased to hear the, it. The amount of TV shows I've said no to, right. the amount of books I've said no to, the amount of you know, do you want to go into this? I mean, I just stopped doing radio again just because for the reason that I didn't do the the amount of stand up last year that I am passionate about. And, you know, I was doing breakfast radio and I just got to the point where I was like, well, actually, I can't. I can't do five days a week breakfast radio and also expect to work nights. It's just one of these two things will be losing out of this scenario. Either I'll be badly serving my stand-up or I'll be badly serving the breakfast radio if I'm serving my stand-up well. So I walked away from that and that was, you know, a pretty lucrative thing to be doing with my life. And I made that choice purely because I'm more passionate about my stand-up and I didn't feel like I was giving it the time that it deserved. And so I feel like I am making those choices, you know. So in my mind, the way that I tell my story to myself, you know, the way that we tell our own life stories in our heads, I look at me and go, look at all these things I'm turning down and walking away from. <laughs> I don't consider myself to to necessarily, you know, and I don't want to certainly, I less and less these days want to be defined by that idea that I am hardworking right. because I would rather... I, I I still would like to work very hard on the things that I value. So, but that's basically how I'm trying to rearrange my life a little bit more is to just spend more time giving all that work to the projects that I already yeah. love rather than adding extra projects along the way. So you heard it here first, Will Anderson, positively lazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the fifth one, which I'm really looking forward to talking about because I've got no idea what oh. you're on about. I've got written down here, and I tried to research it and I couldn't, uh, knob of the year trophy mm. is Will Anderson's possession on Five of My Life. Yeah. Go. Uh, well, I did mention earlier that uh, I don't uh, I don't believe, particularly in the arts, I'm not a particular believer in awards, right? But you've got this one. You and, are, which year was it? Well, this is so, I'll, I'll tell you the, quickly the story because this is, it, it does say something about me because I think that um, arts are subjective and this idea that somehow you can say this TV show is better than this TV show or this comedy show is better than this comedy show is, is a really stupid idea. And I like to make that point as someone who's won all those awards because I think, you know, often if people make that point, it feels like they're being bitter. But I've won a Logan, I've won an actor and I've won a Rose d'Or and I've won a like a Holtman Award, like I've won them and I don't own any of them. I don't know where any of them are. I don't know if any of them still exist. I have no trophies in my house. That is just not the sort of life that I live except for one. And that's the reason I contextualize it is that it is so important to me because when I was at high school, I, um, the first thing that I ever really did that probably led to, you know, this career that I do now was a local community organization called the Lions Club. You know, they're a huge organization. People yep. know the Lions Club, uh, community service organization. They had a statewide and then national competition that was partly public speaking, which was why I had got into it basically. And then uh, the other part of it was like, you know, public service and what sort of person you were. There was an interview component and these sort of things, but they called it Lions Youth of the Year. 
And so basically these regional areas would, you know, the local Lions Club would have a night and you'd have all these people who got sort of nominated and you'd make one prepared speech and one improvised speech. They'd set a topic on the night and you would have to do an improvised speech. So I think the prepared one was like maybe five or six minutes. The improvised one was maybe a couple of minutes. And then there was like this interview component and whatever. And they, you would do the speeches at the local Lions Club and then the person who won that thing would go through, you know, the regional levels and all the way up to state. So I would have been in year 11, I guess, and I ended up winning the Victorian State Lions Youth of the Year and then went to the national finals, which I, I did not win. But I, um, it was the first time that I had ever really done a series of, you know, public speaking, you know, in this format. And it just turned out that that bit of it I was very good at. You know, I that was where I lit up. You know, the prepared speech, good, but the – Improvised speech. That was really my. So the trophy's called forte. the knob. The knob of the year. No, no, so, no right. <laughs> I, I'm going to get to that. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I need to tell you this bit of the right. story so you can understand okay, the next bit of the story. What an organisation is the Lions thing? Knob of the year. I think that this comes from. No, it was very prestigious, and and no one from our area had ever. You know, I mean, like the the fact that some kid from our school in our local area had been, you know, the Victorian Lions Youth of the Year. You know, ended up becoming. You know, it was a big. And, you know, you can imagine what schools are like with this sort of nonsense. You know, they really wanted to, you know, celebrate my success and make a very big deal about it. And so my friends uh, made me a trophy <laughs> and it had a little doorknob on it. And it's like I still have it in my office. Yeah. And it just said, uh, yeah, the knob of the year. And for me, I that sums up so much about me, which was that's what I – my loving, that's my memory of that moment is not about, hey, wasn't this a great successful thing for me? It was my friends undercutting the moment. It was my friends making fun of me. And I had a real, I look back on that constantly. I'm so much more comfortable with that than I am with actual recognition. I'm always, I always want to be the guy tweeting at the Logies. I always want to be the guy calling bullshit on the pomp and ceremony of all that sort of stuff. And the thing that, where it started, that moment of me going, I could have gone two directions there. One could have been, uh, you know, look at me. Aren't I great? Look at this, you know, celebrate me. Or, you know, here are my friends and they're, you know, taking the complete piss out of me and they're undercutting this very big and grand moment. And that's exactly where I wanted to be. They, that was I was 17 years old and I'm 45 now. So, yeah, I've, that's the, perhaps the only thing that has survived every move that I've done in my life. So so that story, I think, is yet more evidence that you were totally wrong at the start of this show when you said the, 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 the conceit, which absolutely is, of the format, you know, might not... And it's a real honour that you gave me your time and you, you forced yourself to do the homework. <laughs> but I think these five things have revealed a lot about you. I mean, I, I have found this totally fascinating and you've brought your real self on so mate you are a dead set bloody legend w- one last question which i ask everybody uh who do you want to hear on five my life next well i was i didn't want to preempt this but are you you kind of preempted it earlier in the conversation because you haven't had russell on have you no i've had todd but yeah, I had, yeah todd yeah. was the first episode right that's right yeah yeah he was the first episode of philosophy as well <laughs> right. i saw that when i was yeah, like yeah. oh look at this yeah. we have we have something you want me to interview russell Oh, absolutely, Done. you should interview Russell. I will give him a He ring. is, I mean, because as you were saying and as you recognise, there is so much to that man that people don't understand. And in this format, I mean, I would love to hear it. 
I'd like to know these five things and I would like to know what Russell brought to the table to tell their story. So 100% Russell. So I'm going to do it. Will Anderson, thank you so much for coming to the Five of My Life. Pleasure. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 